Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, July 13th, 2018. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we are going to present part three of our series, The Only True Adam of Genesis, and this is subtitled Adam's Commission. We've been bouncing this back and forth on Friday and Saturday nights, scratching out our schedule because we... I haven't had too much time for any serious writing or study with Clifton in Clifton Emmerheiser in physical therapy and everything that I have to do related to that, which is taking up a lot more time than I had imagined. I'm not complaining, that's just the way it is. I hope to get back on my normal schedule soon. I don't think it'll be until August, but I'll definitely try to get a John commentary out next Friday and hopefully resume the Protocols of Satan by the first week of August. That's my plan right now. Tonight we have the only true Adam of Genesis Part 3, Adam's Commission. We have been presenting the series, The Only True Adam, not only because I have been too busy with necessary but worldly tasks here at home to maintain my regular schedule, but also because we are constantly confronted, both on social media <clears throat> and within our own real-world circle of Christian Identity Associates, we're constantly confronted with long-time Christian identity adherents who believe that there were two distinct creations of man, each of them called Adam in the Genesis account in our Bibles. The title of this series, first used by Clifton Emmerheiser several years ago, is a challenge to those people that there is one and only one creation of Adamic man described in Genesis. The word Adam is a collective noun referring to a race of men, as it says in Genesis chapter 5 verse 2, where we read, male and female created he them, and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. What day is that? This is a clear reference to the day described in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. And it uses identical language from that passage to describe that race, or those generations. But the word Adam can also be a proper noun, a name used to describe the first male of that race. As we described in part two of this series, which we understand was quite prosaic and perhaps tedious to follow along with in a podcast, the proponents of this so-called sixth and eighth day creation theory insist that the Adam of Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 is distinct, a distinct being from the eth Ha-Adam of Genesis chapter 2 verse 7. And the first thing they ignore 
is that the Adam of Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, in the Hebrew is also called Eth Ha Adam in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Then, among other things, we went on to explain that these differences are only grammatical, and other forms such as Ha Adam, Al Ha Adam, El Ha Adam, and Vav Lamed Adam appear in these same chapters of Scripture. So, if one insists that there are two different Adanic creations in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 for reasons of grammar, then one better insist that there were really five or six different Adamic creations in Genesis for that same reason. But if one insists that there are two different Adamic creations in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 for reasons related to the general narrative, then one must insist that there were three different creations once Genesis chapter 5 is encountered. The truth is that all of these circumstances put the 6th and 8th day creation proponents in a quandary because an honest examination of scripture does not support their theory. If they are truly seekers of truth, they must ultimately realize that Yahweh God created only one Adamic race, and that the creation of the other races of people who did not descend from Adam is not described, nor is it accounted for explicitly in our scriptures. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 through chapter 2 verse 3 is one scroll, a creation scroll. Genesis chapter 2 verse 4 through chapter 4 verse 26 is another accounting, is another account detailing the creation of Adam and the beginnings of that race first mentioned in Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 and 27. The first account encompasses the second. The second account details those verses in the first. The first account, in part, expresses the will and purpose of Yahweh God for the man described in the second. Then Genesis chapter 5 verse 1 begins a new book, a new scroll, if you will describing the subsequent history of that same race. Some mainstream denominational sects also teach this heresy. It's not peculiar to Christian identity. But they claim that the Jews had descended from the Adam of the eighth day, while the rest of us are inferior. But aside from Wesley Swift and Bertrand Compare, another of the biggest proponents among identity Christians of this sixth and eighth day creation heresy was Arnold Murray. Murray was the founder of Shepherd's Chapel, 
And while he is dead, he still has a significant and cult-like following. Dan Gaiman also runs a cult, and he is still alive and preaching in western Missouri. His cult is a little closer to the truth than Murray's, or at least, so far as I know, Gaiman has not yet taken to baptizing Negroes. I have argued with some of his church members who uphold the sixth and eighth day creation heresy, but Gaiman himself seems to have refuted the heresy in his book, Do All Races Share in Salvation? I believe it's on page 149. I call these two groups cults because many of their followers, whom I have encountered, cling to this heresy and others, and refuse to discuss other possibilities. Some of these Swift, Compare, and Murray followers ridicule people who do not believe their heresy. I have argued extensively with some of these people who would spend hours despising a white man while defending the idea that Yahweh created niggers. The people who call themselves kinists, which is another cult, typically do the same thing. They are cults because men are their authorities and not scripture. As we also described in part two of this series, Clifton sought to show his readers how to study, and not merely what to believe, so that they can understand both his conclusions and the evidence upon which he based those conclusions. That is honest scholarship, and it is antithetical to the operation of a cult. Now, to reflect upon further important aspects of the Genesis creation of the only true Adam, we are going to present an essay by Clifton Emmeheiser titled, Adam's Commission, both parts 1 and 2. The importance of this topic should be obvious. If the Genesis 1 Adam were a separate race from our own, it is that race which would have the commission from God to subdue everything upon the earth, while we who descended from Seth would be reduced to penury, being told only to till the ground. I gather that they never wondered why the Genesis 2 Adam gave names to all the beasts which the Genesis 1 Adam was told to have dominion over. But even that is not the end of their stupidity. We as identity Christians certainly need to do better than the 6th and 8th day creation heresy. So this is Adam's Commission, Part 1, by Clifton Emmeheiser. With this paper, we will take up the subject of Adam's commission found at Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 and Genesis chapter 1 verse 28, and Clifton purposely skips verse 27 here, and he cites, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. 
and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. And God blessed them skipping to verse 28 I'm sorry in 27 he actually made that man and God blessed them and God said unto them be fruitful and multiply and replenish and actually the word simply means fill and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth Of course, the 6th and 8th day creation heretics would have to attribute this commission to the non-white races who never fulfilled it. So Clifton responds, We have a very interesting situation with this passage, for we have the actual creation of Adam Man at verse 27, sandwiched between his commission defined in verses 26 and 28. Therefore, this places Adam right at the heart, the very epicenter of his appointed vocation. He is enclosed entirely within it. Hence, there is no way he could avoid doing the job he was created for. Yet there are those in Israel identity who dance up and down declaring that Genesis 1.27 is the creation of the non-Adamic races. Should that be true, and thank the Almighty it's not, the non-Adamic races would have the commission of subduing the white Adamic race. Yet when someone ruptures their distorted premise, they fume, bristle, fuss, and rage to no end. And they certainly do. It amazes me that white, apparently white, Christian identity believers actually become offended and angry when you tell them that Yahweh God didn't create niggers and Chinamen and squat monsters and street shitters. They get mad. They must have a pony in a race. Adaman, Strong's number, 120, was commanded to take dominion over the earth. This verb means to rule over, where it appears at Genesis chapter 1 verse 28. A passage where the context is similar at Leviticus chapter 26 verse 17. And we will get to that shortly. The verse, which is found among the consequences of disobedience, which the children of Israel were warned that they would suffer, if they departed from their God, says, And I will set my face against you, and you shall be slain before your enemies. They that hate you shall reign over you, and ye shall flee when none pursueth you. So Clifton responds, I hardly believe that the non-Adamic races were given the divine authority to rule over the Adamic race as this would be the implication if the 6th and 8th day creation proponents are correct. Rather, it should be the other way around. Although Israel was warned at Leviticus chapter 26 verse 17 that if they didn't hearken to Yahweh, 
they would allow that he would allow the enemy to punish them the words used there are reign over you the Hebrew word for dominion or reign is number 7287 Radha in the Strong's Concordance it can also mean to tread down and Clifton means to indicate that this same word is dominion in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 chapter 1 verse 28 which is reign in Leviticus 26 17 so now he offers some definitions the enhanced Strong's lexicon says the following of this word this dominion word Radha Strong's number 7287 a primitive root there are 27 occurrences of it in the Old Testament the King James Version translates it as rule 13 times, dominion 9 times, take twice, prevail once, reign once, and ruler once. It means to rule, have dominion, dominate, or tread down, to subjugate, to scrape, or to scrape out, depending on the context, I'm sure. From the Theological Word Book, of the Old Testament Radha and they cited derivative Murda M-I-R-D-A is the transliteration and they say that that appears in Isaiah 14 verse 6 it really doesn't and we'll see that the um, the Hebrew manuscripts have Murdaf and they admit that later this verbal root is found in later Semitic dialects, but not the Ugaritic. It occurs in two senses. One is cognate to the Akkadian, Radu, although the Hebrew root developed the specialized meaning to tread and is used in the Kalstem in this sense only once in Joel 3.13 where it says, Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The second meaning is to rule and is used some 22 times in the Old Testament, occurring in every section and type of context. The initial usage appears in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, and let them rule over the fish of the sea. Now, there's an allusion to this verse in Psalm chapter 8, which in verse 6 or 7 in the Hebrew, which uses a different verb. It doesn't use radah. It uses the verb masal, and they point that out here. There is no definite structure to its use in parallel poetry, as the root may be placed in either the first or the second hemistitch. Radah does not occur as a synonym in proximity to the more frequent verb masal. Generally, Radha is limited to human rather than divine dominion. And they cite Psalm 110 verse 2. The root is used of the rule of Israel over its enemies in Isaiah 14.2 and of the Gentile nations rule over its subject peoples. And that's not really a great definition. It's really speaking about the Babylonian rule over its empire. In Isaiah 14, 6, 
A most difficult and unusual usage occurs in Lamentations 1.13, where the RSV, the Revised Standard Version, mistakenly reads, From on high he sent fire, into my bones he made it descend. While the King James Version and others, they cite the Jewish Publication Society, more precisely translated, from above he has sent fire into my bones, and it prevails against them. But to be preferred is the reading. He sent fire from above into my very bones, and it overruled them. There is one instance of the Hithil stem, that's a matter of Hebrew grammar, in Isaiah 41.2, speaking of the reign of the King Messiah, and causes him to rule over kings. Now they go on to cite this possible derivative, which is really a distraction here. A possible derivative is merda, which means dominion, which is not found unless it is the true reading of the Masoretic text Merdaf in Isaiah 14.6. Now this is where Merdaf is defined as persecution in Bible Works 8 and in the King James translation and in the Enhanced Strong's Lexicon. The source is asserting that perhaps the true reading should be Merda to have dominion, but from the context I would reject the assertion. It is Merdaf and it should be persecution if we examine the context of Isaiah 14.6. But the point here is that there should be no doubt as to the validity of the translation of dominion in Genesis 1.26 and Genesis chapter 1 verse 28 and the implications of the text of those passages resulting from that translation. Clifton continues and says the word for subdue found in Genesis chapter 1 verse 28 is 3533 that would be kabash or kabash it also has the connotation to tread down it would appear then that Adam's commission was both to rule and to tread down at numbers chapter 32 verse 22 the word kabash, 3533, appears to mean subdue by making war. The Enhanced Strong's Lexicon says the following. Kabash, a primitive root. It occurs 15 times, and the King James Version translates it as subdue eight times. To bring into subjection three times, to bring into bondage twice, to keep under once, and to force once. It means to subject, subdue, force, keep under, or bring into bondage. The um, theological word book of the Old Testament seems to get its definition straight from the King James translations. To make subservient, subdue, force, or violate to subdue, dominate, or tread down. Evidently, Clifton says, this is a Hebrew word incorporated into the Yiddish as a slang word, kabash, meaning to put a stop to something. And I think it was actually myself who passed Clifton that note. When I proofread this, I sort of remember it. From the Dictionary of Biblical Languages with Semantic Domains, the word kabash, this is the word subdue in Genesis 
chapter 1, verse 28. Subdue, overcome, enslave, conquer, and control an environment or people, citing Genesis 1.28 and many other passages. To be subdued in the passive, to subjugate, to molest, to commit a sexual violation of a female as an extension of conquering a people or environment, and then of sin to remove sin or to subdue wrongs, to remove guilt from wrongdoing. So the word was used in relation to sin as well. Clifton cites a, the Lunita Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, which equates this word kabash to the Greek word katagonizomahi, which is seen in Hebrews 11.33, to conquer, to be victorious over, to gain complete victory over, as the result of a strenuous struggle. And then Clifton states, everyone seems to be overly concerned, and this is absolutely true, everyone seems to be overly concerned about where the Bible speaks of the non-Adamites. It's, um... Wow, it's a constant challenge because when you explain covenant theology to white people, even to aware white people, even to some people that are familiar with Christian identity, all you get is the question, what about the blacks? Or what about the Indians? Or what about the Chinese people? Or whatever. Why do they care about these other races? It's just incredible. Hearing about their own heritage, it shouldn't, or, or at least you wouldn't think, the first response was to care about niggers and street shitters. It just shouldn't. These other races, what have they ever done for us? Why should we have a care for them? All they've ever done was destroy everything we've given them, consume everything we have, rape our daughters, destroy our lands, destroy our cities. Why should we care about them? Clifton says, everyone seems to be overly concerned, this is an understatement, about where the Bible speaks of the non-Adamites. If we will go back to Genesis 1, and 28, it would have to fall into the classic classification of, and over all the earth, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. If one will notice, man, the fish of the sea, the fowl of the air, the cattle, and every creeping thing are separately mentioned, and to include them again under the category and over every living thing that moves upon the earth would be superfluous. One thing the Bible isn't, it isn't redundant. When the Bible speaks of man, it is speaking of Adamic man. I'm not saying the Bible doesn't repeat itself, for it does. 
but when it does we can be quite sure there is a good reason for it. And clearly the Bible repeated itself in the opening verse of Genesis chapter 5 where it speaks of those who descended from Adam and Eve. But it repeats language found in Genesis chapter 1 in verses 26 and 27 rather than in Genesis 2-7. This by itself is sufficient and incontrovertible proof that all three descriptions of creation are describing the very same Adamic man. But here Clifton is really trying to say that if the other races do not fall into the categories of man or the fish of the sea or the fowl of the air or the cattle or every creeping thing then they certainly do fall into the category of every living thing that moves upon the earth in other words Clifton is stating that that there had to be a further statement to cover things that weren't necessarily covered under the categories of fish of the sea, fowl of the air, cattle, and every creeping thing. So <laughs> Clifton is placing the non-Adamic races into that category. So Clifton continues, it's like the passages at Isaiah 21.9 and Revelation 14 verse 8 where it says in part, Babylon is fallen is fallen. In other words, historically the great city of Babylon fell to Cyrus of Persia in 539 BC. And today we have another symbolic Babylon in our present day great monetary political religious system which controls the entire world but is due to fall also as the great city of ancient Babylon fell, never to rise again. With that in mind, we need to check Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 and verse 28 again to see what is repeated. You will find it's fish of the sea, the fowl of the air, which are both stated a second time. I don't want to read more into this than what it says. But I believe that this is an indication that the white Adamites were to conquer both the oceans and the skies. And it has been Adamites who dove deeper in the oceans and flown higher in the skies. The conquering of the seas has taken us thousands of years and the conquering of the skies has only happened in recent history. But no other people can claim the recognition for either. This alone should prove beyond all reasonable doubt that the man at Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 and 27 is not the other races, but Strong's number 120, the white Adamic man. The sixth and eighth day creation advocates should be ashamed of themselves. Unless we comprehend that the Almighty gave to Adam the authority to be the chief administrator over that which was created before him. We miss the entire purpose for his creation. And actually, I would say that Clifton was on a better track in the paragraphs above 
where he had come across these meanings of these words subdue and tread upon Adam was to subdue and tread upon the world which was here before him which is later stated by John to be the whole world which lieth in wickedness the sin in the garden had greater than personal implications by it Adam had forsaken his commission how can you tread down those with whom you choose to have communion which is basically what they did whether it be a communion at a dinner table or a communion in a sexual act is immaterial it's still communion a sharing of something in common is what communion really means Clifton goes on that purpose Adam's purpose is stated very appropriately in Psalm chapter 8 verses 4 through 8 what is Enosh man the word for man in that passage is Enosh what is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of Adam man the word for this word man is Adam so we have Enosh and then we have Adam what is Enosh that thou art mindful of him and the son of Adam that thou visitest him for thou hast made him meaning Adam a little lower than the angels and has crowned him with glory and honor thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands thou hast put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen yeah and the beast of the field the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea and whatsoever passes through the paths of the seas <coughs> excuse me for the phrase the beast of the field to be in context at verse 7 in this passage it must correspond with Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 where the term cattle is used Josephus put it quite properly by stating four-footed beasts in antiquities book 1 chapter 1 verse 4 asks a very appropriate question here what is Enosh man that thou art mindful of him a second question should then be asked if Yahweh is not mindful of Enosh man why should we be how many times have we read Psalm chapter 8 verse 4 not realizing that it is com that it is comparing two different kinds of man this is the difference between just surface reading the Bible or diligently searching out the truth of the matter that truth is the fact that the Almighty has put Adam in charge of this world that's what it means when it says in verse 5 thou hast put all things under his feet this has not fully happened as of yet as Satan and his children the Jews of Revelation chapters 2 and 3 have usurped that position because Israel refused to exterminate every last Canaanite to the man including women and children the word Enosh can refer to Adamic men or it can refer to any other presumed men meaning the men of other races.
That is because the word Enosh simply refers to the mortal nature of man, where Adam, and by extension the Adamic race of men, have both the spirit of Yahweh God and this special commission from him to subdue all which was before him. The word for man is Enosh, where Job 5.17 says, Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore despise not the chastening of the Almighty. It is also Enosh in Genesis 17.23 where we read of every male among the men of Abraham's house and in many similar places. So a Danic man can be referred to as Enosh. But here's the important part. Non-Adamic men certainly cannot be referred to as Adam. When Enosh is set in contradistinction to Adam, it certainly refers to non-Adamic men, to mortal men. But when Adamic men refuse to obey their God, they are really not much better than Enosh. Clifton continues in relation to the failure of Israel to carry out Yahweh's command to destroy the Canaanites. That is where the incarnation comes into the picture. When Yahweh came in the flesh, in the person of Yahshua, the Messiah, he became the qualified Adamite to have all things put under his feet, because he is without sin. Now Clifton says, As I have stated before, the person of Yahshua was made up of 23 chromosomes from his mother Mary and 23 chromosomes from Yahweh through the Holy Spirit without the means of sexual intercourse. He wouldn't have been a perfect, a perfect man otherwise. Today, June 30th, 2004, there was a so-called Bible teacher on television by the name of Les Feldick who said that Christ didn't get any of his blood from his mother Mary, which is true. Where Feldick went wrong is next he claimed that Christ got all his blood from his father God. The scientific truth is, Christ didn't get his blood from either his mother or God. At conception, Mary contributed 23 chromosomes, and the Holy Spirit contributed 23 chromosomes. And the fetus made its own blood from those 46 chromosomes. As the fetus developed, every single cell in his body contained those same original 46 chromosomes. 23 from his mother and 23 from the father through the Holy Spirit. Thus, every single cell of Yahshua's blood was half Adaman and half God. Further, being half man and half God certainly made Yahshua 100% Adamic, for Adam was the son of God. Yahshua came in the flesh containing 46 chromosomes. He was crucified in the flesh containing 46 chromosomes.
He arose from the dead in the flesh containing 46 chromosomes. He ascended in the flesh containing 46 chromosomes. And he will return at his second advent in the flesh with those same 46 chromosomes. 23 from his mother and 23 from the father. Any other teaching is Antichrist. In my prison notebooks, which are in papers that I still have in storage after 10 years almost, I have brief notes describing what I did each day. That's how I stay productive, by knowing what I accomplish every day. Perhaps one day I will use them, along with the metadata from Clifton's computers, to make a chronology of his papers and my own. If for nothing else, I would like to have it for myself. My notes tell me not only when I wrote my own prison essays and completed various portions of my translations, but also when I had proofread papers for Clifton. Here it is a matter of curiosity to me, because in 2010 Clifton was addressing the Ron Wyatt heresies being introduced into Christian identity by the fraud who uses the alias of Eli James. In 2010, Eli James was repeating Wyatt's claim that Christ had only 24 chromosomes, 23 from his mother and one from God the Father. Now we see that for other reasons, Clifton, Clifton was addressing this same issue here in 2004. So I wonder why he was illustrating this so forcefully. There must have been another reason. I, I would think, not merely Les Feldick. Maybe he's only using him as an example, but I really think there must have been another reason. Now Clifton continues. This is not yet all the story. This union of Yahweh and Adaman had to be of the same genetic family tree. In other words, both parties had to have the same genes. If it were not of the same family tree, it would be a genetic misfit. That is how we can know we are genetically the same as Yahweh. We are his genetic sons and daughters. What's more, these chromosomes come in two matching pairs of 23, one set from the mother and one set from the father, and they have to fit perfectly together. Any mismatch destroys the offspring's genetics forever and throughout all generations after him or her. Anyone in Israel identity claiming that race doesn't make a difference is a liar, plain and simple. In other words, if you're a bastard, your children are always going to be bastards. The truth is, we have a racial genetic kinsman redeemer and anyone not of his family tree cannot be redeemed, period. This is only the first paper on his subject, with the next, which will be entitled Adam's Commission Part 2. We will dig deeper into more ramifications of Adam's Commission. It's not a subject that we dare to pass over lightly. You will be amazed at all of the implications. So here we have Adam's Commission Part 2 by Clifton Emmeheiser. This is really basic 
Christian Identity 101. It's something that every identity Christian should know and agree on. But the sixth and eighth day creation heresy, which is so prevalent among identity Christians, is a major stumbling block to truly understanding the scripture. Because Yahweh did not create niggers or street shitters or squat monsters. This is the second in a series on this topic. And how many papers will be necessary to adequately cover all the implications and ramifications is hard to determine at this point. And here I have omitted Clifton's admonition to read the first paper in the series before commencing with this one. According to metadata on Clifton's computer, this essay was prepared for printing in August August 21, 2004. Clifton never did write a part three, and may have felt no need to. Many of Clifton's papers were written in response to correspondence which he had received from others. Now he continues and says, Some of those holding to the sixth and eighth day creation theory contend that Adam's commission is to rule over the other races. They take Psalm chapter 2 verse 8 completely out of context where it, where it says, Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. And that word heathen should never say heathen. It should say nations and certain nations that were promised to the seed of Abraham to become of the children of Israel. And the Messiah was only intended for those nations. So he would only reign. He would only have as an inheritance those nations. They assume we are to inherit the other races as a workforce. But rather the heathen are going to be destroyed and we will receive their lands as our possession. That's what it says in Jeremiah chapter 30. Clifton didn't cite it here. Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 11 clearly states, and reading this we should understand, or we should ask the question, where have the children of Israel not been scattered? Jeremiah 30 verse 11 says, For I am with thee, saith Yahweh, speaking to Israel, to save thee, though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered thee. That's repeated in Jeremiah chapter 46. The concept is repeated in Obadiah verses 15 and 16. Or maybe it's 14 and 15. I think it's 15 and 16. The concept is repeated in several other places and in the parables of Christ. Psalm 2 verse 1 is quoted by Peter at Acts 4.25 Who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? Again at Acts 13.33 Psalm 2 verse 7 is cited. God has fulfilled the same unto us their children 
in that he raised up Joshua again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. It should be perfectly clear at Psalm 2 verse 7 that David is speaking of our Messiah. The question arises then, if the son at verse 7 is Joshua our Redeemer, who or what is thine inheritance in verse 8? At Acts chapter 2 verses 29 and 30, we are informed that David was a prophet, and his prophecy of Christ at Psalm 2-7 validates that fact. So we must ask again, is the entire passage of Psalm 2 in the future in respect to David's time? Hence, if David meant Joshua in Psalm 2-7, who are we to change it to us? So who inherits who or what? Thus, it's not we who are going to rule, but who the Christ is going to, ru to rule. And it's not the other races or the heathen. I am often amazed where all these people come up with all of their harebrained ideas. Adam was assigned segregation rather than leadership over the non-Adamic peoples. This dominion theology seems to have been developed by British Israel adherents in order to provide legitimacy legitimacy for the rule of the British Empire over so many alien so-called people I say so-called people because I really don't like to call them people but in reality there is no dominion mandate in scripture in reference to other races of people it only says in Genesis chapter 9 and God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them be fruitful and multiply and replenish or fill the earth and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and every fowl of the air upon all that moves upon the earth and upon all the fishes of the sea into your hand are they delivered so if like Clifton pointed out in Genesis chapter 1 if some living creature doesn't fall into one of the categories of every fowl of the air and all the fishes of the sea then they probably would have to fall into the category of upon all that moves upon the earth where we see that there are other possible categories I'm not trying to make a doctrine out of that but just trying to point out that the scripture sort of makes room for that the idea that the white race should rule over the non-white races is an error which results from the idea that Yahweh created other races and that is an even bigger mistake in truth, the other races are all corruptions of Yahweh's creation, and Adam was to tread them down and stomp them out. Ultimately, all of the goat nations have their fate in the fire prepared for the devil and his angels, because that is also their origin. Continuing with Clifton, 
there is a very interesting passage that has been found in the Dead Sea Scrolls on the royal tribe of Judah. The following is from the book The Dead Sea Scrolls Translated, second edition by Florentino Garcia Martinez and Wilfred G.E. Watson, who was actually the translator. On page 215, this is from scroll 4Q Genesis Pesher, or 4Q252, that means it's the 252nd scroll or fragment located in Cave 4 at Qumran. And Genesis Pesher means that it's a ancient Hebrew commentary on the book of Genesis. In 4Q252, column 5, verse 1, which is equivalent to our Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, a sovereign shall not be removed from the tribe of Judah. While Israel has the dominion, they will not lack someone who sits on the throne of David. For the staff is the covenant of royalty. The thousands of Israel are the feet. Until the Messiah of justice comes, the branch of David. For to him and to his descendants, meaning David, has been given the covenant of royalty over his people for all everlasting generations, which he has observed. And then is an ellipsis, meaning a, seg- a section of text that's missing, and, and we don't always know how much or how long it is. The law with the men of the community, for, and then is another ellipsis, it is the assembly of the men of, and then that's the last segment of the passage that could possibly make sense. Clifton says, it should be understood that this passage from the Dead Sea Scrolls is not scripture in itself, but rather commentary by some priest or scribe. That's what the word pesher means. But whoever wrote this passage understood that the tribe of Judah was the royal tribe, and that there is an everlasting covenant with David's descendants to sit on his throne. The interesting thing about this passage is that it has the house of Israel as the feet. This accords well with Psalm 2 verse 8 in the King James Version. Had it been translated, and Clifton has the word Adamic in brackets, Adamic nations, so it should be translated nations, but we should understand it to be a reference to the Adamic nations, which is true. Had it been translated Adamic nations rather than heathen, and it makes a lot more sense. This passage is especially outstanding where it says, For to him, David, and to his descendants has been given the covenant of royalty over his people for all everlasting generations. In other words, the authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls in a Genesis commentary did not believe in universalism. Before continuing, I shall interject the notion that the word nations in all of the positive promises of Scripture can only refer to either the Adamic nations of the children of Shem, Japheth, and Ham, 
which are listed in Genesis chapter 10, or to the nations which the children of Israel were promised to become in the future from when the books of the Old Testament scripture were written. This is the understanding of the word which is demanded by the context of scripture itself unless the word appears in another context which is explicitly illustrated, such as where references are made to the nations of Canaan. The nations of all the other races are outside of the context of Scripture. They are only mentioned in prophecies of the remote future where the children of Israel would be overrun. Where they appear in prophecy, they are often described in other ways, such as canker worms, or pommel worms, or locusts, or caterpillars. But they are never mentioned by any names which men may recognize today. Now Clifton continues with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Again, from the book The Dead Sea Scrolls Translated, from page 309. This is from a scroll, 11Q Psalms, or 11Q5, from column 27. And the haft of his spear, this is from the Compositions of David, and it's apparently roughly equivalent to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel, chapter 23, verse 7. And the haft of his spear... And he cast them in the fire, leaving no trace of them. It kind of started in the middle of a sentence. And David, son of Jesse, was wise. A luminary like the light of the sun, learned, knowledgeable, and perfect in all his paths before God and men. And to him Yahweh gave a wise and enlightened spirit. And he wrote Psalms 3,600 and songs to be sung before the altar over the perpetual offering of every day for all the days of the year, 364, and for the Sabbath offerings, 52 songs, and for the offering of the beginning, for the beginning of the month, and for all the days of the festivals. There are the Psalms where it says for the end, because they're really for the dinners that are celebrating the festivals and for all the days of the festivals and for the day of atonement 30 songs and all the songs which he composed were 446 and songs to be sung over the possessed four the total was 4050 he composed them all through the spirit of prophecy which had been given to him from before the Most High. So the authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls believed that David had written psalms or songs to be sung over people as in sort of exorcism ritual. That's interesting. Because the concept is not really mentioned I don't re as far as I can recall it's not mentioned in the Old Testament we hear about people with familiar spirits and wizards that peep uh, 
but we don't really hear about possession very explicitly. Clifton says this passage has many things to consider, but I wish to point out that many of David's psalms are prophecy, especially Psalm 2. Do we have any other reference to support the statement? For the staff is the covenant of royalty. The thousands of Israel are the feet. And that's really the part Clifton's going after. Yes, we do. At Lamentations chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. How has Yahweh covered the daughter of Zion? With a cloud in his anger. He is cast down from heaven. And that's not a literal heaven. It's just a high state of society. He is cast down from heaven under the earth, the beauty of Israel, and has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. And that's what Clifton's going to focus on here, that Israel is being called the footstool. Yahweh has swallowed up all the habitations of Jacob and is not pitied. He has thrown down in his wrath the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought them down to the ground. He has profaned the kingdom and the princes thereof. And Clifton says the term footstool simply implies servant of the king. All Israelites are Yahweh's servants. Clifton's point is to compare Israel as the footstool in Lamentations chapter 2 verse 1 with Israel as the feet in the commentary on Genesis chapter 49 from the Dead Sea Scrolls and the substance of what Christ is prophesied to rule over in Psalm chapter 2. Now he continues with this footstool. I will now quote excerpts from the Zondervan Pictorial Encyclopedia of the Bible on the topic footstool. A low stool for supporting the feet of a person seated upon a pretentious seat, such as a throne. In the Revised Standard Version, the word is used in a literal sense only once in 2 Chronicles chapter 9, where it is said that Solomon's throne had six steps and a footstool of gold. (coughs) In the King James Version. The 13 other times the word is used are figurative, And in all of them, it is God who makes use of the footstool. The figurative uses of this word fall into the following groups. Of the earth, heaven is the throne of God and the earth his footstool. Of the Ark of the Covenant in a tabernacle. Of the temple, of the enemies of the messianic king who have been subdued by him. And they list all the passages in in the notes. They'll... They will be there if you care to examine them. From a Biblical Theology of the Old Testament by Roy Roy B. Zuck, we read a very appropriate comment, and he quotes, David states explicitly, The Lord says to my Lord, noting the two Strong's numbers, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, citing Psalm 110 verse 1 and actually I would not apply this to David as David wrote it and therefore David must be referencing his Lord which is Christ himself 
Christ himself in the gospel interpreted this to be a reference to David's Lord in the person of Christ. The first occurrence of Lord in the passage is Yahweh, and the second is Adon, a generic title. Continuing with Clifton, who is still citing Roy B. Zog, when this elevated language is viewed in light of another psalm of David, Psalm 2, it is most evident that the priestly king is none other than the Son of God. The relevant lines read, He said to me, You are my son, today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. So now Clifton responds. You will notice that Zuck properly rendered Psalm chapter 2 verse 8 to read nations rather than heathen. One may also check the Smith and Goodspeed for a translation of nations here. In fact, the last phrase should have read, and the ends of the earth your possession, and the ends of the earth your possession. I like this reading, for it implies that the lion of the tribe of Judah will rule over all Israel, and Israel will possess the entire, every square foot of the earth, not leaving a single square inch for others. Putting everything in its proper perspective, we have Yahweh Elohim creating Adaman at Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 and chapter 2 verse 7 in his own image, whereupon Yahweh in spirit takes upon himself Adam in the flesh, born of Judah, inheriting Judah's rod who in turn directs Israel as his feet, which then treads upon the enemy who are his footstool. The parables of Christ reveal that the enemy, reveal that enemy to be all of the non-white races, because you're either a sheep or a goat, you're either a wheat or a tare, there's no third choice. The books of the prophets reveal that enemy to be all of the non-white races. However, the feet and the footstool are not used alike as metaphors in all prophecies, as we have seen that in Lamentations alike as equal metaphors, I should probably say. As we have seen that in Lamentations chapter 2, the children of Israel themselves are described as the footstool elsewhere as the feet. Clifton continues in reference to Christ. The representative of Adam-Man, which he esteems is the Messiah himself, which is fine, shall then realize his original destiny of man as the head of the creation and the center of the League of Israel. The tabernacle in the wilderness was at the center. On the other hand, the capstone of a pyramid is really at the center and at the top at the same time. On the other hand, Satan, as the serpent, is the representative head of all that is bestial and corrupt, representing the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This son of man, however, is always associated with Messiah's second coming, 
Inasmuch as the kingdom awaits him, in that it belongs to him as the redeemer of his people and the restorer of our inheritance. Yahweh shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Clifton interprets that as a reference to the Messiah. His investiture was at his ascension with the clouds of heaven, which is in like manner a pledge of his return. And with clouds in Revelation chapter 1 verse 7. At his first advent, the kingdom was given to him in title and invisible exercise, whereas at his second coming it shall be in visible administration. He will vindicate it from the misrule of those who have plundered it through the maladministration of Satan and his children, whom have worked diligently to destroy the seed of the woman. But the seed of the woman, through Yahshua Christ, the rightful heir, will assert his right on behalf of his kinsmen in all his majesty. <coughs> at Christ's coming forth, because he sits at Yahweh's right hand, his enemies are made his footstool. Then the kingdom is given to the son in actual investiture, and he comes to crush his so-called prepared footstool under his feet. But the words with the clouds agree best with his investiture and his ascension, though invisibly given him then, citing Ephesians chapter 1 verses 20 through 22. In the prophetic view, however, he is the precursor of his coming again visibly to reign, and has put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things in the ecclesia. Now, we would rather think that in the statement that he cometh with the clouds in Revelation chapter 1 verse 7, that the word clouds is a metaphor representing great clouds of people, as Paul also used the word in Hebrews chapter 1, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1, and as Jude had cited one Enoch where he wrote, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So the clouds when he was going and the clouds when he is coming aren't necessarily the same clouds. But they point the way. The metaphor is the important component of the understanding. Continuing with Clifton, such is Adam's ultimate commission. For Yahweh took upon himself 23 chromosomes of Adam in the flesh. Scripture confirms Joshua was both the root and branch of Jesse, and therefore of David, for which see Isaiah chapter 11, Romans 15, Revelation chapters 5 and 22, Zechariah chapters 23 and 33, Zechariah chapters 3 and 6. Thus, accounting, being the root and the branch, 
thus accounting for the 23 chromosomes, I'm sorry, of Mary's genetics, without which our Messiah could not be born in the manner prophesied. Without which, Clifton has a double negative there, which must be an error. Without which, our Messiah could be born in the manner prophesied. Likewise, unless Yahweh, through the Holy Spirit, in some manner supplied the matching genetic 23 chromosomes, conception could not have taken place, leaving scripture unfulfilled. So Clifton's entire premise is vindicated by scripture, that the commission that our first father, Adam, failed to fulfill was to subdue the earth and everything on it to himself. But that Christ, being the second Adam, and also being God incarnate, would not fail to accomplish that commission. Now he continues under the subtitle. Adam's commission still somewhat confusing. And we'll see what he means momentarily. If we will go back to Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 and 28, we again see that Adam and his kind were given authority over Yahweh Elohim's creation. Then once we understand that the Adam at Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 and chapter 2 verse 7 are the same Adam, we have a dilemma on our hands. For nowhere in scripture is the creation of the non-Adamic races mentioned. Therefore, they cannot be kind after his kind, nor can it be implied that it was good. Here Clifton is about to cite a paper that I wrote in 2004, but which I had actually retired at Christagenia. At least, I do not think it is any longer publicly available. So I will republish Clifton's prepared PDF and make it available only through a link here with these notes. It was published that year, 2004, on the Israel Elect website, five years before I came out of prison and started Christagenia. Now I also control Israel Elect and I have redirected the link to that paper to the Christagenia overview page at the main website. I don't remember exactly why I did this, but perhaps I felt that the paper was obsolete. Since I wrote the paper around the same time that Clifton was writing this essay, it must have been in response to things which Clifton was writing about around this time, the subject matter being so similar. As I have also said in the past, it was not long before this time, 2004, August of 2004, maybe a year or two, that we became certain of our conclusion that Yahweh did not create the non-Adamic races. Furthermore, the things which I wrote in that 2004 paper, 14 years ago, and at that time only 
seven years into my own studies, I continue to profess to this very day. So Clifton continues, at this point I would like to quote from William Fink's Genesis Overview. I know that many have a strong impulse to find in our Bibles the answers which, with which to rectify the proposals of men such as Velikovsky and Sitchin, or to harmonize the Bible with the pre-Adamic archaeological record. But the truth is that Velikovsky and Sitchin, Emmanuel Velikovsky and Zechariah Sitchin, are modern-day false prophets and children of Belial in whom there is no truth, for they are both Jews, and that the Bible is a history of our own race, which tells us nothing of pre-Adamic earth history except for the presence and origination of the adversary, or Satan. And Clifton now responds and says, It's simply amazing how many there are who have a higher regard for Velikovsky and Sitchin than for Scripture. I have six, these are Clifton's words, I have six of Sitchin's books in my library that someone donated to me but you can be considerably sure that I will be hesitant to quote from him if I ever do, and I haven't yet. Well, Clifton had not in 2004. But, wow. In 2011, when I had split with Eli James and Clifton helped me out with some aspects of that, Clifton did go into one of his Zechariah Sitchin books and he actually found that Eli James was selling some of the same ideas that Sitchin had. And it almost seemed like Eli was quoting Sitchin without crediting him in at least some respects. Now, if I am not mistaken, I don't think I am. I think I left these Sitchin books behind in Ohio when I moved Clifton's library to Florida last year. Certainly, they will not be missed. Now Clifton concludes. But we must get back to the issue at hand. Who's going to rule over what, or whom, and when? When we go back to Genesis, there is not one peep about Adam ruling over the non-Adamic, or the non-Adamic races. Yahweh has given Adam the command to drive out, not rule over, citing Exodus chapter 34, 24, where it says, For I will cast out the nations before thee, and enlarge thy borders. Neither shall any man desire thy land, when thou shalt go up to appear before Yahweh thy God thrice in a year. Furthermore, when we neglected to drive them out, Yahweh turned the tables on us at Numbers chapter 33 verse 55 and allowed our enemy to take charge and he has been in charge ever since. In Clifton citing the scripture where it says, But if ye will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, 
Then it shall come to pass that those which ye let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and shall vex you in the land wherein you dwell. The Adamic rulers on down through the history of Israel have failed miserably. Our best kings in Europe of the house of David, while doing well in some areas, have also failed. Ostensibly, the nations that Yahweh said he would drive out before the children of Israel were all of the corrupted nations of Canaan, who by this time were race-mixed with many non-Adamic tribes, including the Kenites and the Rephaim, or giants. Now Clifton finishes his paper. Let's take a story of India and South Africa, for instance. I speak of Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi, who lived from 1869 to 1948, far too long. After his basic education in India, imagine that, while under British rule, he went to England in 1888 to study law and was accepted into the temple bar, returning back to India again. Elevated street shitter would be his title. He then went to South Africa to practice his vocation, where he became somewhat successful as both a lawyer and politician. But one day, as the custom was in South Africa, Gandhi got kicked off a train because of the color of his skin and spent all night in considerable inconvenience. They should have tied him to the tracks. From this, Gandhi was so incensed that he started to devise, in 1906, his first plan for violent resistance derived from reading Henry Thoreau, Leo Tolstoy, along with both the New Testament and Hindu scriptures. <clears throat> to make a long story short, the same ideology of nonviolent resistance was used against us by the Jew-backed civil rights movement. So that is an example of what we get when we attempt to rule over non-Adamites or half-breed Adamites, and there are thousands of similar stories. If one imagines that the other races were created by Yahweh, when there is no explicit reference to their creation, that is the first of a long line of ensuing misconceptions which will keep us bound in the same cycle of destruction that we see all around us today. In reality, not only are the other races not Adamic, they were not even created by Yahweh, and they are not even people. Rather, they are branches on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They are corruptions caused by the so-called fallen angels, and that is why the goat nations share the same fate as the devil and his angels. Adam's original commission was to stomp them out of this world. And when he failed, it was left to Yahweh himself, incarnate as Yahshua Christ, who will not fail. That is the Christian hope. And as we look at the state of despair around us, that's our only hope. Thank you for listening.
praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and not the God of niggers and street shitters and squat monsters. And good night.